Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a woman who said that, you know, Carol the Coach, I want you to talk about the fact that sometimes I feel like people that work with sex addicts may have their own issues. They may have a sexual addiction. They may have slipped or relapsed. And I'm just not understanding how this all works. Tell me about your certification and help me understand what keeps somebody who has the disease clean and sober. Well, you know, that is a great question because, you know, there is no doubt that whenever you're in the addiction field and you have suffered from the addiction itself and you have recovered from that addiction, it doesn't mean it goes away. It means that you will always have it and you always have to manage it. And I have to tell you that I know for a fact that people that are in this field and their certified sexual addictions therapists have spent hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars to get the training to help sex addicts with their problems. But let's be realistic. Whenever there's addiction involved, whether it's alcohol, drugs, gambling, eating, overspending, workaholism, or sex, there's always a chance that the person who's administering the help may have slipped, may have issues, may even have relapsed. 
So if you're a counselor who's listening to the show and you're concerned about somebody that you know, what you have to do is report your concerns. Now, the woman that emailed me was not a counselor. She was actually a patient. And she had heard in her community that a certified sexual addiction therapist had slipped or relapsed, that he was having problems himself. Does this happen? Absolutely. Does it happen in most cases? Absolutely not. So what do you do? You know, when I was working with a man and I knew that he was a certified sexual addiction therapist and he had relapsed, the man that I worked with had not relapsed in sexual addiction, even though he was recovered from that that disorder. And you know by recovered, I don't mean that it's never a problem again. It means he's using the right tools. But he was also a recovering alcoholic. And he had he had um, full-fledged relapse. So what did I do? I called ICHAP. That's the organization that monitors sexual addiction and other addictions. It stands for the International Institute for Sex Addiction and Other Addiction Certifications. And so... You know what I knew is that I needed to report him not to get him in trouble, not to bust him, but to get him the help that he deserved. And they did. I didn't feel like a snitch. I didn't feel like I was telling on somebody. I felt like I was needing to let somebody know in the organization to reach out and help him. Now, there's always a second thing I could have done, and that was contacted him directly and and said, you know, I'm worried about you, and I'm going to have to report you because I don't want you working with clients if you have relapsed in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not here to impose shame upon you. I I want you to get some help. So that's the second option. But what do you do if you're a client and somewhere, somehow in the community, in the 12-step community or some other sort of support group in the community, you've heard that your therapist or your husband's therapist or your wife's therapist has relapsed. What do you do? You report that person to the governing body and you explain why you think they've relapsed. You know, when I work with clients who may have sexually abused their child or physically or emotionally abused their child, one of the things I know is that I need to report that to Child Protection Services. It's my obligation. I am not reporting that I know for a fact that person has had a problem. I'm reporting that I suspect that there's an issue and I want a governing board to help that person. I want that person to get some help so that they can do the job they really want to do. Because remember, I said, to be in this field, you have had to spend hundreds of hours in training. I always tell my clients, I've spent thousands of hours in training, because I have, and I've spent thousands, I'd say ten thousands of dollars to do it, which is absolutely true. There's no embellishment there. That is what somebody who is in 
that who has the certification and is always getting ongoing certification and education. So we do the best work possible we can with you. And the governing board is not there to take away your license or to get you in trouble. It's there to help you get help. So I loved that I got that email saying, hey, Carol, we need to be talking about what happens if we believe that our therapist has had a slippery lapse. You know, today I was talking to a group of men, and I was saying to them, you know, if you're in a 12-step group, you shouldn't be a sponsor until you've had one year's recovery without slips or relapses, and you've gone through the 12 steps so that you can actually help any of your sponsees through that process. And I got a lot of pushback, understandably, from people in the group that said, hey, you know what? We don't have enough sponsors in this organization. There aren't enough people that have good clean time. And, and the ones that really have two years, six years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years recovery, they have more sponsees than they can handle. They can't take anymore. Well, I get that. And they said, you know, they're talking to me, they're therapists, and they're saying, you know what, just because somebody doesn't have a year doesn't mean they don't give good advice and they don't know what to do. That is the ideal. Not not what's realistic. There aren't enough people to mentor. Well, I agree with that too. Aren't enough healthy individuals to sponsor sponsees. And then the other thing they told me, and boy, I get this. And the ones that do get good recovery, they stop going to meetings. Well, I understand that, but I don't get that because the 12 steps mean When you get to the 12th step and you've got good recovery, you need to help other people. That is your job. Patrick Karn says that that is what will fulfill you. And so I cannot, and I mean that, I cannot legitimize somebody who does this program but doesn't do it right. And so what am I here to say? I'm here to say that it is imperative that if you are listening to the show and you've done your 12 steps and you're in good recovery, I beg and plead with you to give back, to help other men and women in this battle. That is the 12th step to give back. And what it really means is that you have the wisdom to help this person along so that they can be a sponsor too someday. Okay, well, we are talking about flipping, relapsing, recovery, whether you're a therapist, whether you're a coach, whether you're a client, whether you're a sponsor, and, of course, whether you're a sponsee. It's what I believe is so imperative in the process of helping somebody recover from this addiction, which, of course, doesn't mean that you cure them. It means that you help them in their recovery. So, okay, I want to talk to you tonight about recovery. 
I want to talk to you about Michelle Mays, who has written this ebook that is very helpful. The book title is When It All Breaks Bad, 10 Things to Do and Not to Do After Betrayal. Now, see, one of the things that I know and believe is that clients who have been betrayed oftentimes don't know what to do to assist themselves in their own recovery and to know what boundaries to have with the sex addict. And so her ebook, which is going to be out at the end of the week, is a free download. And if you go to her website, www.partnerhope.com or www.relationalrecovery.com, you can get a copy of that book. Michelle is an amazing therapist who has a lot of partner trauma recovery experience, and she's a CSAT. And she has written this book to help partners know what to do in dealing with recovery from, from partner betrayal and sexual addiction. So I wanted you to be able to hear about this book because how many times do you get a free resource? Not very often. And she has made it her mission to educate and provide resources to partners. That is her thing. And so I highly recommend that you go to her website because clearly this is a woman who knows what to do and can guide you through that. And if you're a sex addict, I think you should listen to this because you need to know how to behave and to act. Because I'm telling you, Michelle will be talking about, you know, what do you do first to get expert help? You know, what's in the way of a betrayed partner that keeps her or him from asking for help? In Chapter 6, she talks about giving yourself permission to stay in your relationship, leave it, or not know. And why is this so important? You know, one of the things that I absolutely know is that if you're a partner and you have, you know, lived 10, 20, 30 years with an addict, you have every right to determine what it is that you need for that moment. Maybe you want the stability of staying in your own home and living your life to the best that you can and keeping your family together. It's not an automatic you need to get out of the relationship. So I, I really applaud Michelle for sharing this kind of information. So it gives you some guidelines. It helps navigate you through partner betrayal, and takes you to that next level of what are the steps? How do you get through this? Because again, her ebook, When It All Breaks Bad, 10 Things to Do and Not Do After Betrayal, is a step by step guide. So, Michelle Mays, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. How are you? I am well, and I'm so excited for this ebook to come out. Tell us a little bit about what made you write the book 
You know, I had a focus group that was helping me think about uh, Partner Hope when I first started the website, partnerhope.com. That's the website that I have for Betrayed Partners. And we actually, in one of our conversations, I kind of said to them, list out for me the top 10 things that were helpful for you or that you needed to do when you first entered recovery. And they all sent their lists to me and it was amazing to me because they really all were the same list they over everything on the list overlapped humongously and I just thought okay there needs to be a resource that really captures these steps that people need to take because these are the things that help you start to move out of the pain and the chaos and feel like life is starting to stabilize a little bit and that you're actually on a path that's taking you um, toward healing and in a healing direction so that was kind of my the uh, beginning thought for writing it. And then as I worked on it, I kind of uh, figured out, okay, these are the 10 things and, and then wrote about them. Well, that totally makes sense. And you have been doing this work for how long? Uh, I've been in the counseling field for 17 years now, and I've been working with sex addiction and betrayed partners the whole time. So... A while. And so, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about why you got into this field and what certifications have you gotten to help you become an expert? What sort of, what have I gotten? Certifications that you've gotten to help oh, you become an expert. Okay. Um, well, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm licensed in both Virginia and Washington, D.C., and you know, I got into the field, I think a lot of people, when I asked them why they became counselors, because I'm always uh, hiring staff and interviewing people and asking them this question for the counseling center, but a lot of them say, oh, I was good at talking to people or listening to people, and that was not the case for me. I think for me, it was really because it was very interesting to me and held my attention, and it felt like in this field, the learning is endless, like your ability to learn and grow and um, continue to evolve yourself as well as um, with your clients is really an endless opportunity. And I really like that. So I got into the field that way. I also um, got into working with sex addiction and partners of sex addicts through my own story. I was married to a sex addict. So I went through my own process of recovery and healing and that really kind of led me into working with the um, with sex addiction and betrayed partners and doing that kind of work early on. So I um, soon after I started in the field, I um, entered into the process of becoming a certified sex addiction therapist. So I did that back in the early 2000s and um, have been certified ever since and um, supervise other CSATs and um, do that kind of work. Well, and you're very well known in the field because obviously you've really made it your own to help sex addicts work through this process, but you can tell that you have a special heart for partners who have experienced the betrayal, the sexual betrayal of sex addiction. So let me ask you a little bit about your book. Your book starts out and it says the 10 things to do or not to do. So let's kind of go over them a little bit at a time. What are some of the things that you should do when you discover that your husband or wife is a sex addict? 
Well, you know, I think the very first thing that I started it with, number one, was to get expert help. And I think maybe some of the later chapters are a little more riveting in some ways because it's easy to think, okay, I know I need to get help. I'm not going to read that kind of thing. But the reality is that getting help and getting help from somebody who is trained and really understands uh, betrayal trauma, understands addiction, understands infidelity, whatever you're dealing with, who really has knowledge and understanding about what the path of healing is, is super, super important. And it helps you come out of crisis much quicker. It helps you stabilize much quicker, helps the pain alleviate much faster. And so I made that the first step. And I also made that the first step because I think for a lot of partners, one of the things that I hear a lot at the um, Center for Relational Recovery, the counseling center that I and the clinical director of the partners will come in or they won't come in. The addicts will come in. The addicted client will come in and say, well, I'm here because I need to get well. My spouse won't come in. She doesn't need help. She's just said, I need to get well. I need to get help, but she doesn't need help. And I see a lot of partners who sort of sit outside of the healing process and don't enter into it for themselves. And I think, that really slows down their own healing. And I think what's happening for a lot of partners there is that they are um, feeling the shame of the betrayal because for most people, when they experience sexual betrayal in their relationship, it immediately attacks them with a sense of shame and a sense that somehow they have caused it or there's some failure in them. There's some defect in them. There's something in them that caused their partner to, stray outside of the relationship. And that's a real deep cultural belief that we have that if you are, you know, I'm sorry. No, I, I was just listening to you. I, cause I agree oh, with sorry. you. I think that either happens or Michelle, sometimes I think that they look at their financial situation and they go, well, my husband needs to help more than I do. And so their needs stay on the back burner while the sex addict's mm-hmm. needs get to come first. And although that's an important component, it's important to talk to a specialist about how they can meet both of their needs because they're a coupleship, they're in relationship. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. I think that another person cannot do your healing work for you. So your spouse can't heal you. They can certainly help you heal and them doing their own healing work certainly will help you to do that, but they can't heal you for you. And so I think you getting in to getting help um, is super, super important. And I'm just going to finish the point I was making about the shame because I think it's important too, is that mm-hmm. if that piece, if that feeling of shame is keeping you out of getting help, a lot of times it feels for partners like if I come in and get help, I'm sort of acknowledging that I'm somehow part of the problem or I'm going to be told that I'm part of the problem and that I've caused Mm. part of the problem. And so the fear about that and the fear of having the shame reinforced in some way by the therapist that they go to see, I think that keeps a Mm -hmm. lot of partners from coming in. And so if you can get to somebody who is trained well and really understands being the partner of a sex addict, being somebody who's been betrayed, who can meet you in a way that instead of reinforcing the shame, alleviates the shame. That is so pivotal and so important for you. 
early on in the process of your healing. Oh, 100%. And, you know, it's real interesting because don't hold this against me, but when I first met sex addicts and they came into my office and I worked with them, they got better and they had support and they did 12-step meetings or they did Recovery Nation online or they did Every Man's Battle. But they got the support to help them with some initial recovery. And it was then the wives that I would ask to come in, and they were in so much trauma. They were so triggered. They were so anxious. And I always said the partner carries the shame. I'm sorry, the addict carries the shame, but the partner carries the pain. And then what I realized is I really got to working with these folks is that partners carry shame and pain too. You know, they come in and they Very much so, But the shame is, was something wrong with me? Did I do something Mm -hmm. wrong? I need to keep this a secret for our family. I need to keep us together. You know, I don't need anybody knowing about our family secrets. And so they just were inundated with shame. And you figured that out quickly based on your history and also working with partners of sex addicts. So then I agree with you. You know, I see too many therapists and pastors and priests that are misguided because they don't have the education and know how to handle this relational problem. So what would you say the second tip is for really working with a partner to get healthy? Well, you know, I think the second thing that I talk about is um, reaching out and getting embedded in a community of support. And I think this is, again, helps with the shame once again, because it gives you a safe place where you can tell the secret. You know, the reality is Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, there aren't a lot of safe places to tell the secret, to talk about, hey, I just found out my spouse is a sex addict. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not something that is safe to talk about in general public at this point for most people. So getting connected to a community of support gives you a place to do that. And again, starts to alleviate that sense of shame and also the sense of isolation, because when you experience betrayal trauma, just the hit of the trauma to your physical system makes you want to curl in on yourself and isolate. It's sort of this protective strategy where you want to curl in and withdraw from the world and pull inside yourself where it feels safe. And then for most partner, there's this tendency to feel like I just want to pull away and isolate for a while. And getting plugged into a community of support combats that and helps you come back out of yourself into a safe space and then hear from other people what they're doing and the things that are working for them to help them start to heal, to start to feel better, um, to get on a different path. So I think it's really critical that folks do that, that they do it as soon as possible. I also think it provides them with other people to latch onto as a form Mm -hmm. of security and a safe space. If we think about our, in our long-term relationships, our partner is our safe space typically when we're attached to them and, Betrayal wipes that safety, that sense of safety out of the relationship. So having some other people that you feel safely attached to and held by helps you during a time when your your original safe space of your relationship is a wobbly mess. 
it sort of gives you another place to latch onto and feel supported. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons for the reaching out for the community of support, and that's one of them. But I think that's the second big step to take on the path of healing. Well, and I'm sure you let people know the different types of support groups, whether it's Essanon or COSA or, or the Women's Battle. or There are just so mm-hmm. many online support groups. I think mm-hmm. you even provide some, don't you? I don't provide an online one yet. Partner Hope is developing that right now. I'm, I'm in the process of developing a, a program for betrayed partners and then also for couples dealing with betrayal. And that's going to come online later this year. Um, but we offer uh, groups at the Counseling Center, at the Center for Relational Recovery. We have groups for betrayed partners, groups for couples, um, and groups for uh, the addicted partner. Well, and it's good to hear that because I had thought you offered those, and I know that your face-to-face groups are excellent. And I agree. When you're with a, a, a like-minded group of people that have been through that trauma, you understand that not only are you dealing with something situational and relational, but all of a sudden you're dealing with your own ability or inability to process traumatic information. I mean, we know the partner betrayal causes an executive functioning um, inhibition. I mean, the amygdala mm-hmm. just goes crazy, and all of a sudden, partners don't know how to speak. I mean, you know, they don't know what to say, and they don't know what, what to believe and how to trust in themselves. They don't trust their gut. They don't trust what they think. They don't trust their heart anymore. And they're in trauma in regards to the the addict, and also their own functioning. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. so. It's right. just making me think I oh, – go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, your Chapter 6. Tell us a little bit about Chapter 6 because partners who have been through this, know they need the guidance. So tell us about Chapter 6. Well, so Chapter 6 is about giving yourself the permission to either stay – in your relationship, leave your relationship or not know what you want to do about your relationship. And I think the thing about this that's so important is that you really are um, clearly given a choice to do what is best for you. I think um, one of the things that I see partners wrestle with all the time is this sense that if they stay in the relationship, there's something wrong with them. So one of the things I write about in this chapter is I use this example of this client that I worked with years ago, and she just was in this pattern of just, you know, raking her uh, addicted husband over the coals with her, like verbally just going after him. And we were sitting down one day, and I said to her, I said, you know, let's really think about what this is about for you. So I had to really come down into her body, get really grounded and planted inside of herself and feel what this was really about at the root for her. And she said to me, she said, you know what it's about? I feel like if I don't do this to him, if I don't, if I'm not mean to him, if I don't uh, yell at him, if I don't criticize him, if I don't sort of go after him, that I'm a fool and I have no dignity because I let him cheat on me and then I stayed. So I feel like I have to make him pay or else I don't have any dignity. 
And that opened up a way for us to really explore what was happening for her underneath and for her to really shift out of that behavior pattern. But for, for her and for so many partners, there's this sense that by staying in the relationship, I've given up my dignity. And our cultural story that we tell in the movies and the media and stuff is somebody cheats on you, you wrap yourself up in your cloak of self-righteousness and you stalk out the door. And that's what self-respecting people do. They don't stay and take that. But the reality is, even though that's the cultural story we're telling, the reality is most people are trying really hard to preserve their attachment. When we attach we are in like a mysterious bonding with our partner and it's valuable to us and we become a biological organism with our partner. And that's not lightly torn apart by most people. Most people try really hard to figure out how to preserve their relationships and if there's a way to stay in them. And so for betrayed partners being given permission that they are allowed to decide what is best for them, that there is no loss of dignity in staying in the relationship, there's no loss of dignity in leaving the relationship, and there's no loss of dignity in waiting to see because you don't know that all of those are viable choices for you, and you're allowed to make whatever choice is best for you, and you don't give up anything by deciding to stay with somebody who has cheated on you. That's, a, that's not a weak oh, position. That's actually a position of strength. No, I absolutely agree. And before you came on the show, I was saying that, you know, whether this happens in your 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, you have the right to decide what your initial needs are, your immediate needs, and maybe that's to stay in your own bed, be in your own house, keep your family together. It's not a shameful act to take care of yourself and decide what is it that you need to get through this crisis. So I love Chapter 6 because clearly it gives partners permission to take a Mm -hmm. look at their own inventory, their own life assessment, and decide what do they need right then and there and that there's no shame for not leaving. I mean, you know, certainly we've had a lot of women in the last 20 years that have been exposed as being partners of sexual betrayal. And there is, that we are in a very judgmental culture that says, well, you should do this mm-hmm. or you should do that. And your counseling center and your book gives them permission to make the decision that is best for them in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think the other thing, too, that partners often run into is this fear that in making the decision to stay that they're sort of like a, like a one-time forever and always decision that needs to be made and that mm-hmm. if they decide to stay, they have to stay forever. And and I think to also know that you also have the ability and permission and you are allowed to decide, I'm staying for today, you know, and then tomorrow I'll decide about tomorrow. And next year I'll decide about next year. So I'll decide as things unfold this is not a decision that I am making right now forever. I get to, I get to kind of be with the unfolding of things and decide what's good for me as it goes along. Well, absolutely. And in that same vein, Chapter 7 talks about, as a partner, what do you have the right to know? And, 
you and I are both big proponents of a partner has the right to know the truth. And and yet mm-hmm. as skilled therapists and partner trauma specialists, we also have to help that partner decide what do you have the right to know and what might not be the best information for your brain. I mean, let us help you to decide do you really want to know every position? Do you really want to know every hotel? Do you really want to know every person's name, the color of their hair, and what the circumstances are? You know, what is in your best interest? And ultimately, you and I both believe the partner will figure out what it is she needs to know. We just have to help guide her there. So tell us about that chapter, chapter seven. Yeah, well, I agree with what you've said there. That that, cha- that chapter is actually a little bit different in content than that. I mean, it does talk a little bit about that, like the right to know about the scope and depth of the betrayal that has happened. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there's like another whole chapter that goes into it a little bit more deeply because I think that's like a, it's its own whole big issue, you know, figuring out how you're going to learn the whole truth and get the whole truth and what you need to know. And like you said, it's super important for each partner to really wrestle with that question for herself about what do I need to know and what, once I know it, I can't ever unknow it and may actually cause me more harm down the road. So everybody has to sort through that. And again, having somebody with a good skill set that can help you sort through it and kind of say, here's what I've seen happen for other people. Here's what often people do that goes well and give you some guidance is really, really helpful. So that is, I do talk about that a little bit in that chapter, but the bulk of that chapter is really more about just what you have a right to know in general about your partner's recovery. Because I think for a lot of betrayed partners, there's been sort of this, um, this idea in the, I think it's really largely in the 12 step community, but it, it's in the therapeutic mm-hmm. community too, that, that partners are sort of supposed to sort of like let the addicts do their own recovery and not really have much knowledge about it, stay in it, that they're not supposed to get over there on the other side of the street. You know, you hear this, stay on your side of the street, get out of my recovery. You're not supposed to be uh, driving my recovery, those kinds of things. And so there's, there's, a, there's a nugget of truth in all of that, but I think it's very confusing for a lot of partners because they feel like I, this has happened to me, this is going on in my relationship, and I really do need to know what's going on and understand it. So this chapter is really about what you as a partner have a right to know around your um your significant other's recovery. And so it, I talk about things in here like you have a right to know who they're going to see for therapy, what their treatment consists of, what the treatment plan is, how frequently they're going. You have a right to hear from them regularly about what they're working on and what's happening for them in the process. Now, how you do that, how you negotiate that out as a couple in terms of how you're going to talk about that is a little different for each couple, but you have a right to know that information and to ask for that well, information. Absolutely, because that is about how it. they feel safe, right? I mean, if they exactly. know the kind of recovery their husband or wife is doing, then they will feel safe in a very unsafe situation. The truth helps to set everybody free. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that I talk about in there is that you have a right to know what your significant other's sobriety definition is, and you have a right to give input into that definition. So one of the things we do at the Center for Relational Recovery is we have couples do a, a, a not just one session, it usually takes more than one session to get this done, but a couple of couple sessions where the addicted partner comes and says, here's my sobriety plan. Here's what I've worked out with my therapist and my group, and I want to present it to you. And then I want to ask you, does it create safety for you? Does it create enough safety for you? Is there anything that would make you feel more safe? And so facilitating that conversation, because the betrayed partner needs to be able to say, yes, this creates safety for me, or no, this does not create safety for me, because that sobriety definition is really about the sexual agreement in the relationship and what the two people are agreeing to. So it's something that has to be done in relationship. You have to negotiate that out as a couple. And so you have a right to know about that as a betrayed partner and to give feedback into the process and really have that be something that the two of you as a couple have agreed on together. So that chapter really kind of talks about those types of, those are kind of the things that are addressed there under the what you have a right to know. Well, and I'm always telling my partners, um, because you've heard of the Association for Partner-Sensitive Trauma Therapists, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because that is what I've been credentialed with, and, and you and I are saying the exact same things. And so so oftentimes when I get a partner who comes into my office, she has been SNN or COSA or another 12-step group, and those groups can be incredibly helpful. Although... They are groups that say, hey, just work on your side of the street, take care of yourself, work on your own self-care, and let him do his recovery or let her do his her recovery. And I'm a big proponent, and the only way to feel safe is to know what the spouse is doing in terms of their addiction. That, and, and to be able to know and see and view and watch and it's not about monitoring, but it's about feeling safe. And so clearly, I believe, and so does APSAP, that when a partner is aware of her husband or wife's recovery, then they do feel safer and that the addict can help the partner to heal by providing that information and developing empathy for the partner and recognizing the pain and acknowledging it and validating it. As a matter of fact, I just wrote a new book that's in the publisher's hands right now, and it's about how the addict can make the partner feel safe by reflective listening and good communication and empathy and being an open book because this is a relational Mm -hmm. problem. This is not like drugs or alcohol. It is not just about addiction. It's about a relational fracturing. Right. And I always say a relational problem requires a relational solution. So you can't solve a relational problem without having there be a relational solution. So it has to involve both people. And, you know, I think the part that is confusing for a lot of partners is that there is that whole 12-step mantra about, you know, stay on your own side of the street and work on you and stuff. Again, there is truth in it. And I think that's why it's confusing because there is a nugget of truth in it that there are parts 
recovery that you, you know, you can't manage the other person's recovery and they can't manage yours. So there's some truth in it. And that's where it gets confusing. I think for a lot of betrayed partners, because they're trying to figure out, well, what's the truth, what's the negative truth here that I need to embrace and what is not true here. And it's really trying to sort of sideline me out of a relational process that I actually need to be involved in. So, hopefully this chapter in this book helps clarify that a little bit. Um, that was my attempt in writing it. So, Absolutely. And so remind everybody, the book, um, When It All Breaks Bad, 10 Things to Do and Not to Do After Betrayal, is going to be mm-hmm. available, and it's going to be on both your websites, partnerhope.com and um, relationalrecovery.com? You know, it it actually will not be on relationalrecovery.com, so it'll be on partnerhope.com, and um, it should be up by Wednesday. We're having some uh, technical stuff go on with just getting it up and everything, but it should be up for download. It'll be available for free download on the Partner Hope site. So I think if you go to just the Partner Hope homepage, you should be able to subscribe and download it and um, give it a read. So it should be there hopefully Wednesday morning. Well, excellent. And so one of your chapters, to-dos, is to allow the moment of truth to happen. Now explain to us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that and how can a partner ascertain truth? So the moment of truth that I'm talking about in this chapter is really, um, it's the moment when you make a shift in terms of whose energy is driving the recovery process. So for a lot of couples, when they, when they come into recovery, the, there's usually been discovery. So the addicted partner is in the shock and awe of having been discovered and the shame of having their secrets come out into the light and their defensive, defensiveness around trying to protect themselves from the shame and hide the secrets. And there's just all that dynamic going on for them. And then for the betrayed partner, they are, of course, reeling from the traumatic impact of the betrayal, trying to understand who this person is that they were married to or in a relationship with that now feels like a stranger and trying to figure out what has really gone on. How do I get the whole truth about this? How do I actually figure out what's happening, been happening in my relationship this whole time? So in that early crisis that people go through, often it is the betrayed partner's energy and their pain and the loss, the potential threat to the relationship, that the relationship might be over, that drives the couple into treatment and into healing and into recovery. And that's normal. That's just kind of the way it goes for everybody early on. Everybody kind of comes in. And often the partner is then in a very self-protective stance. They are trying to figure out what's happened. How do I protect myself from further pain? So they're very, very vigilant about what's going on in the relationship. They're vigilant about what their spouse is doing in their recovery. They are making sure that their spouse does not lose sight of what they have done and does not lose sight of the betrayed partner's pain. So they're often making sure the pain stays in front of the addicted spouse so that they don't forget and they stay motivated to stay in their recovery. So there's a lot of energy happening from the betrayed partner to sort of drive the couple and keep the couple uh, moving in the recovery process. And the moment of truth 
doesn't happen in this early, early stage. It happens a little, a little farther down the road. But the moment of truth is when the betrayed partner kind of sits back and says, I have to not be the energy driving my spouse's recovery. Because as long as my energy or my pain is driving it, I can't ever feel safe. If I have to always remind my spouse or stay in crisis so my spouse continues to take this seriously, then I can't ever get on with healing. Like I can't ever move through this crisis phase into the next phases of the process of healing. So there has to be a moment Mm -hmm. of truth where the betrayed partner shifts, shifts her energy or his energy away from kind of motivating the recovery and steps back and sees if in doing that, the addicted partner comes forward and the addicted partner's energy rises and is now the driving energy behind the recovery. And that's the moment of truth is, will this happen? If I quit being the, the driver, if I quit sort of making sure I stay in crisis or I stay in pain and I remind my spouse constantly of what they've done and what needs to happen, if I stop doing that, will my addicted spouse still take everything just as seriously? Will they still remember what they have done? Will they still be just as committed to their recovery? Will they still work just as hard on the relationship? Will they still be as attentive to what I need? Or when I stop bringing my pain and bringing crisis to things, do they then say, oh, good, now I can sort of lay back and not step up? And that's the real moment of truth in a relationship because long-term, it's the addicted partner's energy that has to sustain their recovery. It cannot be the betrayed partner's energy that sustains that. And so there has to be this moment of truth where you kind of both make a shift and you find out, is the addicted partner going to do this or not? And I think for a lot of betrayed partners, that moment is scary because what if they don't? What if when the betrayed partner kind of moves their energy back, the addicted partner also moves their energy back? Then that's really scary because maybe that means the relationship might end. So I think the moment of truth is very tender for a lot of people. It's a very scary thing to allow to have happen because it might, you might run into real disappointment when you do it. But you also might find that, yes, your spouse is absolutely there. He is on the wall manning his own recovery, and he is pressing forward, and he is taking care of the things that need to happen so that you don't have to feel like your energy is driving it. So that's what that chapter is about. That's the moment of truth. And it's a critical moment for couples in recovery. It has to happen. There has to be that shift at some point in the process. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you say at that point because truly one of the things that I believe about sexual addiction and partner betrayal is that initially when the discovery occurs, the addict oftentimes does come in. He comes in because his wife has found me and I'm the only certified sexual addiction therapist in Indianapolis. So she'll say, I want you to go to her. She's certified. She knows what she's doing. And he'll come in. And he's really coming in for her. And I Mm -hmm. say, you know, in addiction therapy, we used to always say, hey, you can't do it for anybody else but yourself. 
But what I know to be true is oftentimes with partner betrayal and relational issues, the addict comes in for her and then gets healthy or healthier and figures out it really is for him. And she has to let go of that micromanagement and trust the process and take care of herself so that they can begin to be a healthy couple again. Well, I think that there's the the moment of truth is both people have this moment of truth, both people in the relationship, because the addicted partner also has to find a different motivation for their recovery mm-hmm. other than their partner's pain and crisis. So when they first come in, often they are motivated in recovery by, oh, my goodness, I might lose my relationship I've wrecked my relationship. I'm wrecking my family. Everybody's in pain because of my behavior. I've got to do something. So they're coming in from that perspective. And so, again, the crisis and pain is sort of driving them and motivating them. And so the addictive partner's moment of truth is when they transition from my motivation is my partner's pain and the crisis I've caused to my motivation is about what I want what I want for my relationship, what I want for my life, their, their motivation shifts from one of I'm being motivated by pain to I'm being motivated by what I long for. And that's their moment yeah, of truth where they have to have a shift too. And so both people have this to do. And when it happens in the relationship, it changes, it changes the whole uh, pattern of recovery for the couple when it happens, but each people have their own version of it that they have to go through. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I think we're really saying the same thing. I also think that, you know, the beautiful thing about a relationship is that it is a gift to want to be your best person ever. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so we need to end, and at the same time, one of the things that I'm wondering about is how, again, can somebody get your book, and how can they find out more about your services? So the book will be available on uh, the website, partnerhope.com. So you can go to Partner Hope, and it will be available on Wednesday uh, for free download on there. So um, you can access it there, and then you can also – Sign up to receive a weekly blog on Partner Hope. And on Partner Hope, we are eventually going to have a whole bunch of um, stuff coming down the pike, a program for betrayed partners that's online, and a program for couples. So there's a bunch of stuff happening there, and that's all going to hopefully launch in the next um, few months. So you can stay tuned there. If you're in our area, in the Northern Virginia area, we have our counseling center, the Center for Relational Recovery, and we do treatment there. We have an office in Leesburg and an office in D.C. So you can also check us out at www.relationalrecovery.com. Well, Michelle, you have, you know, you've done this work for so long, and you have really, I don't want to say catered to the partner, because certainly you had your CSAT first and foremost, but you understand the pain to the partner for the addict and the relationship. And I just so appreciate the fact that you have constantly uh, worked diligently 
to provide partners with more hope, strength, and recovery. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for having me on the show to have the conversation with you this evening. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, absolutely. And I have read her book, and I've got to tell you, this e-book is essential. If, If you're a partner that just has started the discovery process and you're reeling from the crisis, it's a great book to help get you through. And it's a great checklist. I mean, it's a way for a partner to say, okay, you know, did I do this? Should I do that? Oh, this is what the recommendations are. Because you do a nice job of making recommendations, but really allowing the partner to know his or her truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that is so important. It's really they have to decide, is this right for me? Because they've had choice taken away from them in the betrayal. And so returning to knowing that you get to make choice is really important. Yeah. So thanks again, and keep me posted. Mm-hmm. Let me know of other projects you're doing, and um, really appreciate the work you're doing because uh, I can tell from the many people I interview that you really are on your game for knowing what's best for partnerships and relationships. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Carol. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Michelle Mays, and again, she has a book out, and that book is called, and it's an easy one. It's an e-book. It's a free download that she hopes to have out by Wednesday, and it's called When It All Breaks Bad, 10 Things to Do and Not to Do uh, After Betrayal. And you can get that on her website, www.partnerhope.com. And so, as I say at the end of every show, no matter whether you're the sex addict or the partner, or I was just talking to a couple of grown women who are daughters of sex addicts and partners, we know this affects the whole family. And regardless of who you are, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly. Have the courage to be yourself. And uh, keep listening to the show because we offer some of the experts, the best experts in the field who will help you find the resources you need to grow stronger from this crisis and this tragedy. All right.